0: Hi, this is Vic Nitty, Chair of the AUA Office of Education, welcoming you to another AUA Office of Education podcast. Today's podcast is Chronic Orcalgia, an Algorithm for Successful Treatment. My co host today will be Dr. David Shin. Dr. Shin is Assistant Professor and Vice Chair of Urology at Hackensack Meridian. School of Medicine at Seton Hall University in Hackensack, New Jersey. Uh, before I introduce uh, David, I just want to uh, go over uh, some, of our, um, some of our learning objectives for today. Uh, first, I'd like to just uh, say that chronic or testicular pain is a challenging disease to treat from both the patient and the urologist perspective. Because the perception and resolution of pain is often subjective in nature Uh, with a national trend toward treatment away from opioid use it's important that clinicians utilize an algorithm focusing on non narcotic use. uh, For medication treatment as well as to be able to offer office based and surgical therapies when medical therapies fail so. Our learning objectives for today are to compare and contrast pathologic and non-pathologic etiologies of scrotal pain. Second, are to summarize the rationale for different medication therapies and incorporate an algorithm for treatment. And third, to distinguish between various surgical treatment options depending on the etiology. And that introduction was so nicely written by, uh, by Dr. Shin. So, David, I would like to uh, welcome you to the podcast.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me today. I'm really excited to uh, join you.
0: So, uh, I will just tell the audience that this was originally something that uh, that David submitted uh, as an AUA uh, instructional course for the annual meeting. And uh, when, when I thought about it, I thought this would really be an excellent uh, podcast topic. It would reach it it, it's a a problem that all urologists see on a regular basis and I just thought it was really ideally suited for a podcast and I thought it would reach a much larger audience so I'm so happy that David uh, agreed to do this with us so we'll start out by simply asking for the some definitions and the pathophysiology of chronic
1: orcalgia sure so you know, chronic orcalgia is defined as kind of as an intermittent or conscortal pain um, that lasts greater than three months in duration and will interfere with the patient's daily activities. So, you know, what's interesting, the pain will not just be localized to the testicle. I mean, it could also include pain localizing to the epididymis, any paratesticular structures, or even the spermatic cord. So when you kind of use this broader definition, you know, the differential diagnosis for chronic orcalgia includes... So it's not only both, you know, chronic etiology, but it can also be unresolved acute etiologies of direct scrotal pain, which includes like epididymitis, testicular torsion, tumors, obstruction of the vas deferens, varicocele, spermaticele, hydrocele, or any unintended injuries, you know, following a vasectomy or hernia repair.
0: David, what about uh, pain that 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 is perceived as chronic or calgia, but may not necessarily be related to scrotal contents. Is, is that possible?
1: Well, absolutely. Um, and that's what makes this you know, challenging because um, just because you think it's only related to the scrotum, it may be other reasons. Like for instance, um, men can have scrotal pain uh, from a mid-uretal stone. Uh, it could be a vascular aneurysm, uh, lower back pain, interstitial cystitis, prostatitis, pelvic floor dysfunction, or even an indirect inguinal hernia. So those are all things that could, you know, lead towards scrotal pain. It's also associated with, you know, psychiatric conditions like a somatic symptom disorder or even major depression. And then, you know, like a medication such as amiodarone, which is used to treat cardiac arrhythmias. Now that's something that we don't, you know, deal with or see, but you need to be aware of because in, um, it can cause uh, sterile epididymal inflammatory syndrome in up to 11% of patients who are on this medication. So there are a lot of different reasons other than, you know, scrotal content that can lead towards chronic ocalsia. At the same time, though, even though there are those possibilities, you know, up to almost up to 50% of the time, there is no real reason. It's uh, considered idiopathic.
0: Now, I, I know in other diseases, other urologic diseases and symptom complexes, we often will use the term idiopathic. But even in these idiopathic cases, is there a pathophysiologic mechanism for chronic orcalgia?
1: Well, yeah, there is. And I think, um, you know, maybe I'll just go through what a pain process is. So first of all, you know, when someone has acute pain, you know, before uh, and it becomes chronic, it, it um, you know, it starts in these couple of steps. So for instance, you know, traditionally, you know, noxious stimuli lessens as healing progresses. OK, and then this leads to decreases in uh, perceived pain until finally there's resolution that's achieved or there's no more pain. But acute pain can also cause an increase in nerve sensitivity, which then leads to modulations of nerve pathways and then ultimately, you know, may lead to, you know, hypersensitivity and spontaneous firing. And it's this kind of altered or hyperactive activated nerve sensation in and around the sperm, spermatic cord, which is considered to be the major factor in promoting, you know, chronic or calgia. So, one potential mechanism for this hypersensitivity is something known as Wallerian degeneration, and that's characterized by, like, say, an autodestructive uh, change in the nerve cell axon after injury that normally promotes regrowth and healing. But instead, you have this heightened immune cell response initiated by the neutrophils and macrophages, which causes this intense inflammation surrounding the nerves, and then that leads to this neural hypersensitivity. And, you know, this was found in an anatomical study done by Pericaudel and colleagues, you know, this was about a few years ago, where they looked at men with chronic ocalgia, and they found that this Wallerian degeneration was seen in three specific locations, kind of to support this hypothesis. Um, It was seen in the cremasteric muscle, the peribasal sheath, as well as the posterior uh, perilipomatous tissue.
0: So now, does this type of nerve hypersensitivity um, have a... Typical or common clinical presentation?
1: Yeah, great, great question. So, you know, this hypersensitivity hypersensit- kind of will show itself as you know two conditions. One, um, something known as allodynia, which is the perception of pain uh, from a normally non-painful stimulus, or um, hyperalgesia, which is an exaggerated response to pain, more than what you would be typically expected. And that then can result in a perception of pain occurring even months after like say an injury has healed
0: all right, so let's move to some uh to to some practical points. A uh, patient comes in uh with what appears to be uh scrotal pain or chronic oralgia.
1: How do you start an evaluation sure so you start an evaluation like what well, we all do, right? We start with a good taking a good history to find out, you know, onset, location, duration, character, severity, and you know, whether or not there's even an radiation of the patient's pain to another location. So, you know, with chronic calgia, typically you see a dull aching pain dull, aching kind of persistent pain that occurs with this uh, type of a uh, uh, presentation. Whereas, like say something that's severe, intermittent um, pain. Maybe more indicative of something like epididymitis, orchitis, or even intermittent torsion. And what I do find is that if you use like a visual analog pain scale, like from zero to ten, uh, that can be a really useful tool to help qualify as well as you know document the severity of pain. So you have both you and the patient something to refer to and look back to. You know, I think it's also important to you know find out what factors make the pain worse or better. Right? For instance. Uh, you know, many patients who have scrotal pain may experience worsening of their symptoms with prolonged sitting. So if that's the case, then you you will advise them later not to do that, right? Um, you know, after taking a good history, then, of course, you want to inquire if there is any other history of chronic pain, injury, or psychiatric illnesses such as depression, which is can be associated with this. You also want to make sure if there's any prior surgery that's been performed, like, say, anything in the scrotum, the inguinal region, the retroperineal, spinal surgeries. As well as trying to determine if there was even a history of prior vasectomy.
0: Is there anything that you focus on during physical examination? Any tips that you can give to our listeners when it comes to examining the patient with uh, chronic orcalgia?
1: Sure. So you know, of course, you start uh, you know examining the scrotum, right? You maybe you have special attention, you know, that's paid towards the testicles. You examine that closely, the epididymis, uh, the spermatic cord, as well as the inguinal canal. And when you do that, um, what you're trying to assess for is not only, you know, first the most worrisome thing is, you know, a testicular tumor a mast, uh, but uh, you're also trying to assess if they have inflammation or infection of the epididymis or the testicle, varicoceles, uh, spermatoceles, cells, or even if they have an, uh, an inguinal hernia. Now, you know, one tip I guess I could try to share is, you know, let's say if the patient's pain is on one side, right? Well, you may want to consider starting the exam on the other side to divert their, you know, focus or away from that pain. So that, you know, one, you're trying to get a sense of what that testicle is, the, I guess the good side. Um, but then also the, it sort of braces the patient to know that, okay, they're not going to be examined. And of course, you want to make sure you tell them this before you do that so that they're kind of prepared because already they're already sensitive in this area. And, you know, lastly, it's what's very important is to do a rectal examination. You want to feel the prostate, make sure they don't have prostatitis, as well as uh, examine, uh, you know, the pelvic floor musculature. Because, you know, in about 63% of men with either chronic prostatitis or this chronic pelvic pain syndrome uh, will report having scrotal content pain as well. How about initial diagnostic testing? Sure. Um, You know, a simple... Lab tests, I think, you know, we all do as urologists and are familiar with is, you know, starting off with a urinalysis and uh, with a urine culture, you know, to rule out infection. Uh, Again, that's the main reason to do it. Uh, You can also order a semen culture, especially if you think that's the source of infection. Uh, A duplex doppler-scored ultrasound uh, should definitely be performed. Again, you want to rule rule out or assess for any structural abnormalities, again, in the testis, the epididymis, uh, spermatic cord. And lastly, you know, a CAT scan or MRI really would only be considered if there's a history of back pain, you know, associated with skirtal pain. So if you're trying to, uh, you know, see if they have any spinal conditions, spinal stenosis, or even if you're concerned about a, a kidney stone, that would be the more reason why you would do those type of testings.
0: So let's say the patient uh, goes through that basic evaluation. Um, obviously, if you find something in, on exam or on testing, that is might be or or you think is a cause of the pain you'll go ahead and focus your treatment on that but let's say lab tests uh, and any imaging studies that you do uh, that you deem appropriate or negative um, and you don't have an absolute etiology for the uh, for the pain Um, what initial treatments do you uh, start with at that point
1: Sure. So, I mean, I think, you know, maybe what you're asking is, you know, what are some kind of conservative management or things we can do um, easily can be recommended or started off with? And so, you know, one thing that patients can do is that, well, they can either wear, you know, tighter fitting underwear or a scrotal support for elevation, because that may help to relieve some of their pain symptoms. Uh, You can use either hot or cold compresses. Um, It really doesn't matter which one it is. I think it bottom line, whichever one works. So, Um, In that sense, you know, patients can try to experiment one way or the other. And, of course, lastly, if there's any activities that evoke pain, well, they should be avoided. You know, for instance, we talked earlier about, you know, um, you know, prolonged sitting, you know, sometimes is associated with this chronic pain syndrome. So, you know, one thought is, you know, just taking scheduled breaks throughout the day uh, that may relieve pain uh, so that it can sort of break the monotony of things. And then other kind of non-invasive things or, or I guess, uh, non-medic- non-medication-related things you can do is start with, you know, biofeedback, acupuncture, or even pelvic floor physical therapy, especially if there is an associated, like, say, pelvic muscle uh, dysfunction that's been found on examination. So it
0: makes sense that we would start with conservative therapies. Um, how often would you say conservative therapies help patients in your experience where you don't have to move on past that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it really just all depends, right? It's, um, you know, I, I find that it, it works probably about 20, 30 percent of the time, you know. Now, it, it also depends on your patient population, right? I mean, if, if you're a referral center where um, you see, you know, patients who've already been through a few people, then 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 that percentage is going to go down. But I think for you know a lot of general urologists out there um who they may be the first time the person they're seeing this uh the patient's the first their first time they've seen these patients um that you know i think these conservative therapies can definitely help and at least it gives them some structure and knowing that uh, there is you know things that can be done if they haven't done that already
0: and i would imagine that for for some particularly younger patients just some reassurance that there's not anything wrong i mean you know uh, you would think uh, young people are going to be particularly concerned about you know as cancer et cetera. Uh, i would imagine that even that reassurance to physical exam and whatever testing that hey whatever this is it's nothing serious i would imagine that probably helps in in a certain number of cases as well
1: absolutely i think you know our always our biggest challenges you know is especially with these young guys is that um you know, that they are doing self-examinations and that, you know, I think if anything, we rather err on them being concerned and being evaluated than just not being concerned, right? So that in itself, I think reassurance is, is definitely um, very powerful.
0: Now, how about you've gone through your conservative um, management and they haven't worked? What's the next step?
1: Well, I, I think that's where once these conservative management therapies don't work, um, really the next step is you know medical management, um, which would be you know different therapies or medications.
0: What about you know lo- lots of times you see these patients have been treated with a course or multiple courses of uh, antibiotics? Is is that a reasonable thing?
1: Well, you know, antibiotics are really only reasonable if there is an infection, right? So if there is something that that you've that's been documented either from an ultrasound or an examination You know, severely tender you know, epididymis or, or testis, um, again, also confirmed by ultrasound, then yes, antibiotics is appropriate, right? But a- as well as if you have a, a urine culture or something that states uh, something positive. But if you don't have any clinical or radiological evidence showing infection, um, then really antibiotic therapy is not indicated and, and shouldn't be offered uh, for treatment for you know, orchalgia. So
0: where should we start? What's our first line medical therapy?
1: Sure. So um, you know, in terms of first line therapy for you know pain control and management, um, the easiest thing is doing a you know a two to four week trial of anti-inflammatories. Okay, and and they they could be a, a few things. Either one, you can start with ibuprofen, you know, six hundred to eight hundred milligrams every four to six hours. Uh, naproxen, five hundred milligrams, you know, twice a day or even some of the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medications such as uh, silicoxib, 200 milligrams daily, as well as meloxicam, you know, 7.5 to 15 milligrams daily.
0: Is there any one of those that you favor or would it be different in different patients?
1: Well, I think the easiest thing to start with ibuprofen is the most common thing that you can just get over the counter um, without using a prescription. Um, And then after that, um, naproxen is also good. And and then, you know, the nonsteroidals either one is fine, the celecoxib or the meloxicam. I think, you know, part of it is um, also dictated by, you know, what uh, insurance plans cover.
0: Okay, so how about if, well, before I get what, before I ask you what to do if these don't work, how often would you say that anti-inflammatories give a significant relief
1: of pain? Well, I, I think, it again, it just depends on etiology, but a lot of times um, it will work. Again, it, it's a good first-line therapy. Uh, again, it, it starts, um, I don't have a, there's no data showing exactly, you know, percentage-wise uh, in terms of like, okay, it works in 80% of the time. I think maybe in, you know, clinical practice, again, it, it's, it's a good starting point. Uh, probably about, again, 20, 30% of guys will, you know, will have uh, relief just with that alone.
0: Okay, now let' moving on. Anti-inflammatories have not given uh, the patient uh, significant pain relief. Um, what's next?
1: Sure. So you know, once that doesn't occur, doesn't work, then you're using um, other medications that that uh, may be off off off-label. So for instance, uh, tricyclic antidepressants such as like amitriptyline, which is 25 milligrams daily, or nortriptyline is just starts at ten to twenty milligrams daily and could even potentially titrate up to one hundred fifty milligrams as needed um, that would be you know one of the therapies that you can use and you know the exact mechanism of action is is unknown i mean that that's that's been stated but but it's thought really be to do to an inhibition of either serotonin or uh, norepinephrine reuptake so in other words by having the elevated serotonin or uh, norepinephrine levels in the brain, okay, it leads to further enhancement of inhibition of something called nociception, which is the sensory nervous system's response to harmful stimuli. So in other words, there is, it leads to a decrease in perception of pain, and that's what these, um, these uh, medications have, have shown. Um, you can also use something called neuromodulators, such as gabapentin, which is starts at 300, going up to 600 milligrams three times a day as well as pregabalin, again, 75 to 150 milligrams daily. And the exact mechanism, again, is not known, but it's thought to be due to a blocking or binding of the calcium channels uh, in the central nervous system, which then, you know, uh, reduces uh, neurotransmitter release. And that, again, leads to this inhibition of the uh, nosiception.
0: So I got a couple quick questions. Um, With respect to tricyclics, do you tend to like to give them at nighttime before bed to minimize side effects? I know I've done that in treating uh, some pelvic pain syndromes and it seems to minimize side effects. Do you have a preference for when the patients take it?
1: Yeah, absolutely, it's a, it's the same thing. We like to try to minimize side effects and so using them uh, in the evening um, is preferable. You know, but of course, we always have to be um, flexible, like obviously if if it works better for patients in the day, that's not a problem either. but um, but we start up in the evening just uh, just like as you said.
0: And then another another question I had as you were sort of explaining some of the proposed mechanism of action for tricyclics, and you mentioned um, norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake. Has anybody ever tried to use uh, duloxetine? For this, since it is a norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake inhibitor, any any experience with that?
1: Uh, you know, uh, not that I'm aware of. I, I think you know at least, and I think that's always been the problem or difficulty in this space is that the literature on this um, is 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 few and far between. And but you know that um, that's an ent- interesting point and could be an, uh, a very good study uh, to look at. Um, Maybe something I'll consider after this um,
0: so my next question is you know we went over a couple things tricyclics neuromodulators um, any studies to support their efficacy
1: sure so um, there is one study that actually supports their efficacy for these neuromodulators and tricyclic antidepressants um, this was published in 2007 now it was it was in the study of 19 patients. So already right off the bat, that's a small study. Okay. Um, but it's really the only study out there that shows its efficacy. In fact, you know, about 62% of these patients who are on gabapentin and about 66% of those who are on norm- on the uh, nortriptyline uh, reported a 50% or greater improvement of their pain. So that's what we use as our basis for this. Um, but, you know, as we just talked about really, uh there really isn't that many studies out there and i and and I think that's uh if we could have that that would be really helpful in terms of you know advancing you know just our understanding of the whole uh of the whole uh you know uh, treatment
0: so what about narcotics for the especially uh difficult and affected patient with pain
1: right so you know the challenge with narcotics is that i mean you know they will work of course i mean but but they're really only going to mask the symptoms of chronic calgia, right and it's not really treating the underlying conditions okay and 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 of course as you know you know we're trying to minimize opioid use in the united states and so um this is really not something that that um would be offered or or i guess maybe the better way to put it um, if it's something, if it's at a point where someone is really having that much difficulty in pain, um, you're probably better off referring this to a pain management specialist because this is where their area of expertise and and can also assist you um, with this. So, um, you know, so I personally don't, you know, don't really prescribe narcotics. I, I don't think, um, and, and if they are at that point where they need it, then uh, I think we need to get some other specialists to help us with this evaluation.
0: Yeah, I can imagine that would just be uh, you know, an open window right to uh narcotic dependency. Um and uh, of course we'd like to stay away from that. Well, you know, we mentioned in the beginning surgical options. What about the, what's the role of surgery in the treatment of chronic orcalgia?
1: Well, you know, surgery definitely has a role and I think um it's something that, you know, you pres- you would only do after Patients have failed conservative therapy and medication therapy, so um, surgery is not right off the bat um, but it definitely is a role once uh, you've started exhausting some of the more conservative met- and uh, therapies as well as the medications
0: um, so let's talk a little bit about um, um, any further any further diagnostic tests before moving ahead with uh a, a more invasive or aggressive treatment?
1: Sure, sure. So, you know, before you're going to do any surgery, I think it's really important um, to establish, you know, if there, if if it's a nerve issue or not. And so, you know, typically what we recommend is having uh, patients undergo a spermatic cord nerve block, you know, prior to performing any sort of procedure. Because not only would this to be diagnostic, uh, but, again, will be helpful in determining whether a patient is a surgical candidate or not. So can you
0: take us through the steps of how a nerve block is performed?
1: Sure. So, you know, this is usually done with an injection of about 20 cc's of a 50-50 mixture of 2% lidocaine and uh, 0.25% bupivacaine without epinephrine using a very small needle, 27-gauge needle. Now, the injection is done directly into the spermatic cord at the level of the pubic tubercle. Uh, Now, you could use an ultrasound um, if the patient's anatomy is somewhat challenging due to their body habitus or if they've had surgery before so you can use an ultrasound to assist you with that uh, injection. Uh, Now after you perform the block again doing that injection um, the patient's response really should be assessed and it should be used with that again that rating scale that uh, numerical visual pain schedule that I think I mentioned earlier because you can you can you again you have somewhat objective data that you and both you and the patient can refer to both before the block and then you're going to ask them after the block um, how how um, how their pain uh, control is now if the spermatic cord nerves are involved in the pain signals you 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 what patients should see is relief for the next six to eight hours because that's as long as the anesthetic is going to work all right and this is a good sign especially um, because if the spermatic cord block is at least 50 percent successful in reducing pain then then we can talk about surgery as being an option and I think, interestingly, for those who experience like hey, more than, you know, really 90% pain relief, you know, these cord blocks can then be repeated in the office every two weeks as needed.
0: So now if uh, you patient has a uh, successful or has a good response to a cord block and is is interested in treating the problem surgically, what are the
1: options? Okay. So... You know, at it, it first there are a few options. It just first depends on the underlying etiology, right? So, for instance, if there's a history of vasectomy, okay, about one to two percent of men who undergo vasectomies may develop again this kind of constant or intermittent, you know, testicular pain that lasts for more than three months, and and this is actually, you know, usually defined or coined as the post-vasectomy pain syndrome, okay? So. Now, post vasectomy pain, you know, patients, you know, who, again, fail conservative therapy, just as what we just talked about, you know, then the next step could be is the microsurgical vasectomy reversal. And why it's thought to work is because, you know, the pain from the post that's related to the vasectomy might be due to, like, say, a nerve compression of the spermatic cord, you know, causing inflammation or either back pressure, you know, from, you know, congestion of the epididymis, or you know perineural fibrosis you know again that's a consequence of the vasectomy and when you do the vasectomy reversal you know you consider also removing any sort of sperm granuloma especially if it's you know when you're doing your physical examination it's tender on exam so you can remove it at the time of the uh, vasectomy reversal now you know of course anytime patients undergo surgery as, as you know we we have to they have to be counseled appropriately and you know what i do tell patients is that you know, this isn't 100% guaranteed, right? And in fact, the success rates on vasectomy reversals for these type of situations uh, with post-vasectomy pain syndrome, syndrome has been reported really anywhere between 50 to 69%. Okay, so it's good, but it's not perfect. And obviously, the biggest drawback of doing a vasectomy reversal is that you are potentially restoring back the patient's fertility, the whole point of why they did the vasectomy to begin with. Now, you know, what's... Also interesting, besides a history of vasectomy, is that you know are found in about two to ten percent of men with chronic orchalgia. And you know again, etiology of why this occurs is not completely understood, but it's thought to be due to again compression of the you know kind of nearby uh, neural fibers by the dilated veins, uh, as well as kind of increased scrotal temperature, you know oxidative stress to the to the testes, and and you know testicular you know ischemia that's kind of secondary to the basal uh, to the um, varicocele, you know, stasis. Now, um, you know, again, what are success with this? Um, you know, partial or even complete relief of pain symptoms, you know, after varicocele surgery is, is really good. It's reported anywhere between, you know, 72 to 94% of men in various studies. And what's really interesting about that is that it didn't matter what the approach was, okay? So, in other words, if you, if you did the surgery as an inguinal approach, sub-inguinal approach, retroperineal, laparoscopic, microscopic, or robotic, it, this was the same range. So it didn't, mem- it didn't matter how you did it as long as you did it for, that, for the purpose for pain control. But of course, that being said, you know, anytime you counsel patients, uh, you always, they always have to be aware, it's, and, it's been, and it's been quoted in the literature, you know, that there can be at least an 8 to 10% risk of persistent pain even afterwards.
0: So David, I, I have a quick question for you. In the patient, with chronic orcalgia and a varicocele will you take them through all of the less aggressive options that we spoke about um first or you know if 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 there's chronic orcalgia let's say it doesn't respond to a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory will you skip those other things and go to a varicocelectomy so sort of Going outside of the algorithm that we just spoke about, or do you kind of stick to the algorithm?
1: Sure, I, I think you know, like with algorithms, they're there to um, help guide you, right? And and so um, it just really depends on your discussion um, with the patient, right? It's uh, it's as we as you all know, as we all are very familiar with this shared decision-making process. So you know, first and foremost, before even if they have a varicose, I, I do you know, offer them, and I want them to go undergo conservative therapy first, because that may work, right? And it may work in about 20% of the time. Uh, Whether well, again, it's just, you know, just doing some sort of modifications in terms of wearing underwear and whatnot, um, or taking ibuprofen non- and non-steroidal uh, inflammatories and, and yes, I would still even offer them the neuromodulators or, or the tricyclic antidepressants, uh, because again, that may be, because it's maybe a way for them not to undergo surgery. Um, I think it does twofold. One, it, it shows that you've done exhausted everything um, you can, and that two, they um, patients understand that um, you know that you're trying to do everything before you get to surgery. And then, lastly, of course, um, you get to this surgical uh, uh, portion of this. And you know, I think when you do surgery, you you want to you want to make sure that you do it all for the right reasons, and especially um if you just sort of go right into the varicocele surgery you 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 run into that risk of still persistent pain even afterwards and that may be because it was more of a neurologic you know nerve issue and not necessarily the varicocele in itself
0: so is there a role for cord blocks in patients with um post vasectomy pain or in patients with varicocele or is the cord block more useful in cases of uh, idiopathic um, uh, pain.
1: Well, I think the the core block, no, is definitely useful. I mean, not only for idiopathic. I you mean, know, that's for the primary uh, reason. But even in the situations where there is post vasectomy pain or uh you want to know is there is there is there a nerve issue or not, right? Because um, if they respond to that, then you know then. You know, one can consider again, like say with the varicocil, for instance, right? At the time of varicocil surgery, you also consider doing, you know, a microsurgical denervation, you know, at the same time, right? Um, versus, like, say, with the vasectomy, post vasectomy pain syndrome, you know, then if patients do respond to that nerve block, then they have options, okay? Because the option may be one, um, okay, go ahead and do the reversal, or two, instead do the microsurgical denervation. And that way, um, you're sort of treating that condition while still maintaining uh, their sterility
0: okay let 's move on to the uh, the the idiopathic patient. Um, you had been uh, speaking about uh, microsurgical denervation, so I, um, uh, I I'm guessing that's one of the options, and uh, if so, can you tell us a little bit about how you do it?
1: Sure. So, you know, with the idiopathic patient, yes, then there are definitely excellent outcomes that occur with the, you know, what's called the microsurgical denervation of the spermatic cord. Okay. And then and, and patients who have a again a greater than 50% positive response to the spermatic cord uh, tend to do well with this surgery. So, you know, so I guess the question how do you do the surgery? So um, you know, first, you know, the in the in the standard microsurgical denervation. Um, the procedure is usually done either through an inguinal or sub-inguinal, sub-inguinal incision. Uh, the spermatic cord is identified and the ilioinguinal nerve is isolated and transected. Okay, and then afterwards the spermatic cord is delivered up uh, out of the incision site. Now at that point, then you bring an operating microsco- uh, mi- an operating microscope or you use robotic assisted technology, and the external spermatic fascia is open anteriorly, exposing the underlying cord to contents. The cremasteric uh, fiber is identified and transected carefully so uh, to, to preserve the cremasteric artery. Um, you know, next, all the veins and the microsurgically visible nerves are ligated and di- divided. And you're only left with the testicular and the deferential uh, arteries, lymphatics, as well as the vas deferens that's intact, because especially if you want to, you know, preserve fertility. Now, what interesting, interestingly, what's also you do is that you do the fascia around the vas is strip-free and divided for a length of two centimeters because, again, you know, um, 50% of the cord nerves are located in close proximity to the vas deferens. Now, uh, a variation of the surgery is something of a more target approach where only the cremaster muscle fibers, the perivasal tissue, and the posterior lipomas tissues are transected while you're still preserving the internal spermatic sheath. And that includes you know, the cystic artery, veins, and lymphatics. And hydrodissection of the basal sheath is also performed because, again, this ensures the ligation of the neural tissue uh, that's around the vas deferens without actually injuring the vas deferens or its corresponding artery. And, you know, the basis for this kind of alternative approach, this targeted approach, is, again, from the Wallerian you know, nerve generation that was observed, again, in the cremasteric muscle fibers, uh, perivasal tissue, and again, that posterior lipomatous tissue. And, you know, in one series, you know, 83% of the cases had, again, a significant reduction in pain after this targeted approach. And it's very similar to, again, the success rates that's been reported for the standard uh, microsurgical denervation of the spermatic cord.
0: What kind of complications do you see with microsurgical denervation?
1: Well, you know, other than, I guess, hematoma, you know, wound infection, and, and of course, the procedure failing, um, the specific risks associated with procedure include either, like, say, hydrocele. Now, that occurs less than 1%, and and that really only occurs, if again, if you have damage to the lymphatics, and so that's why you try to preserve the lymphatics during this procedure. Uh, I guess another potential complication is testicular atrophy. Again, that's 1%, um, and that would only result if you have injury uh, to the arterial supply going down to the testis but um you know overall this the surgery is is low risk and again is typically performed as an outpatient procedure
0: uh, and lastly I guess we would be remiss if we didn't talk about uh, orchiectomy or uh, epididymectomy as a definitive treatment option uh yes uh my first question is yes and I guess my follow up to that would be if yes uh, how often do you get to the point where you do either of those two procedures?
1: Sure. So, you know, either an orchiectomy or an epididymectomy is really considered last resort. Okay. It's, it's it's you know, because the success rates are really varied. It, I mean, it's as low as 20% um, and even, I guess, as high as 70%, depending on, you know, you know, which study you read. But, you know, even that in itself, um, you know, what it shows is that, you know, you can remove an organ. Um, and you can still have pain afterwards, and and that's you know, it's one thing if you know it's going to work, right? Then then it's risk reward. But it's even worse if you're now taking a you know, an organ that's benign, uh not not for cancer related reasons, and yet patients are still symptomatic afterwards. So really, it's it's really really last resort. I I, I tried not to to do that because of the mere implications of. Of just you know losing that you know testicle just for uh, just for pain control
0: what what about the scenario of let's say an older man who has what you know based on your exam basically has a chronic epididymitis the epididymis is clearly the culprit it's clearly tender he's been treated with multiple courses of antibiotics anti-inflammatories etc is that a more appropriate place to say well, we're going to do an epididymectomy or even an orchiectomy
1: well i think you know again with you know as long as fertility is no longer going to be an issue and 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 even though he may be older per se um you, you can never assume anything of course right but let's just say for argument's sake that that you're right fertility is not the issue um and that and that he's really looking for something definitive well, then, yeah, you may lean towards doing something like that as something um, that can be helpful. Uh, again, um, you know, I think um, a lot of times, you know, in this space, uh, it, you know, these patients tend to be younger. And so that's why, you know, the orchiectomy or epididymectomy really is not, um, again, would be more last resort for those folks. But, um, but again, it's something that, again, when you have that shared decision-making process uh, with uh, yourself and the patient, um, that is a consideration um and um may, and something to think about
0: well you've done a really nice job of uh, of giving us treatment algorithms from conservative treatments medical treatments all the way to surgical options how about alternative therapies or things that may be uh coming in the future
1: sure so um there's only been a couple things that's been reported um in terms of alternative therapies, I guess maybe I could discuss here. So, you know, first there's something called uh, pulse radiofrequency ablation of the of the genitofemoral and ilioinguinal nerves. Um, that's shown some promise. It was just recently published in in Pain Physician in 2018, uh, where you know 70 patients were randomized. Now, now they, now they had chronic post-surgical workalgia, so they had some sort of surgery-related uh, testicular pain, but um, they were. Uh, randomized to either this radio frequency ablation versus sham. And they found that there was significant improvement in pain scores as well as a decrease in need for pain medications in this treatment group. Uh, another uh, alternative is something called salvage ultrasound guided targeted cryoblation of the spermatic cord. And again this is uh, was conducted to men who failed the microsurgical denervation of the spermatic cord. And what occurs here is that the branches of the genitofemoral uh, nerve, the ilioinguinal nerves as well as the inferior hypogastric nerves were cryoblated, uh, both medially and laterally to the um, laterally to the spermatic cord at the level of the external inguinal ring, and in this study, about uh, 221 patients, again recently published in Urology 2019, uh, showed a 75% reduction of pain. So again, that's something. Um, you know, the question is now that's for salvage, but is that something that may be done for primary and? Uh, I'm sure you know the authors are, are are looking into that right now. And lastly, something called transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation um, performed in the suprapubic region, where, uh, again, it's just nerve stimulation. I guess of the of the of the of the nerves leading towards uh, towards the testicle. Um, when it was used with pain medications, uh, it was shown to significantly improve visual pain scores and quality of life. And again, in a small randomized controlled trial of about 70 men. So, so that,
0: you know, that's yeah, like using a tens unit in the suprapubic region?
1: Yes, exactly. No. Tens unit in okay. the suprapubic region. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, I guess the question is, you know, will these therapies work out and 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 be viable for, you know, men with chronic orchia, I guess, you know, that that'll be another podcast one day.
0: All right. Well, D- David, this has really been a a, a comprehensive discussion. Um, I just wanted you to give our listeners uh, some of your final thoughts or advice.
1: Sure. Um, I think first and foremost, you know, it, it's important or helpful to be systematic in your approach um, because it makes sure that uh, the patient, because this helps the patient understand why you're being methodical about the way you do things. Uh, and hopefully I've given uh, some data to you to sort of back up why we do the things so it makes sense. It doesn't seem like we're doing things randomly. Um, Now, obviously, you know, what we presented today doesn't guarantee success, but it uh, hopefully will help urologists have a better framework, you know, in terms of how to treat chronic ocalsia, as well as to help ease, you know, patients' anxieties and frustrations that are associated with this condition. And I think also more also importantly is that during any point of treatment, you know, you really shouldn't be afraid to engage in any of your other colleagues or specialists, such as pain medicine specialists, neurologists, psychiatrists, psychologists, or physical therapists, you know, to help out uh, provide any additional care. Well,
0: that was really terrific, Dr. David Shen, who is assistant professor and vice chair of urology at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine at Seton Hall University. Uh, thank you for really a, an excellent and, uh, and comprehensive podcast on a topic that we don't often discuss, but something that uh, most of us and uh, most urologists see uh, on a regular basis. Uh, I would also like to uh, thank the audience uh, for listening. And uh, as always, uh, for more information, you can uh, visit us at auanet.org slash university. Thank you.